This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's Summer Leadership Training back in 2020. The theme that year was Designed, where they studied the creation, fall, and redemption of God's beautiful design. We hope you find this encouraging. Tonight, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 2. I'm I'm sure you're not surprised with what text we're going over. All summer, we're really looking into the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Particularly, we're going to be in Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Now, we have a lot to go through, so I'm going to get to the text and pray through it. But I typically, when someone says we have a lot to go through, or we have 20 points or whatever, you would groan and, oh no, how are we going to bear this? But tonight, we're going to be talking about sexuality. Okay, you know. Um, so there's a lot to talk about, but I think it's a, it's a subject that... Uh, Everyone in this room has a lot of questions about, a lot of interest in, and even a lot of brokenness in. I think if we just accumulated the most shameful experiences of all of our lives, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them had to do with sex in some sort of way. So this is really sensitive, really countercultural, really important topic. So we're going to pray and ask God to really give us the grace to understand, the grace to apply it in our lives, to see the beauty in it, to turn from the things that we need to turn from, and to see Him glorified in this area in our life. So let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would be here with us. Help us to understand your word. Enlighten us. We know that without your spirit, we... We not only won't understand what your word says, but we won't be able to obey it. And we admit our feelings in this area. We admit admit our dependency in this area. And we ask that you would guide us tonight. Amen. One of my favorite authors, her name is Marilyn Robinson. And one of the reasons I really appreciate her as an author is she does a great job of showing the internal turmoil that someone has, particularly in the way of change. That every single person understands they need to change, but often they lack the power to do so. And all of her characters, she gets into the internal dialogue of those characters and how they need to change and you see it, but they don't know if they can change. This quote from the book Lila, the main character Lila is thinking about internally her previous life as a prostitute, and now she's in the small town of Gilead, Iowa. She has an opportunity to marry this pastor, and there's a tension within her about which life she's going to live. And this is is what it says. She thought, I could tell him I don't want to, to be a preacher's wife. It's the only truth. I don't want to live in some town where people know about me. I got St. Louis behind me and Tansy T and pretending I'm pretty, wearing high heel shoes. Wasn't, not, uh, wasn't no good at that life, but I did try. I got shame like a habit. And the night that I read that, I underlined, I got shame like a habit. Because I realized For a lot of us, we're looking at a fork in the road, we're looking at two lives that we could possibly live, and the thing holding us back is I have shame like a habit. That we walk around with our shame, it becomes almost instinctual, it becomes almost a part of us. 
shame like a habit, particularly in this area of our life. So what I'm hoping that we can do is we can see this area of sexuality, this area of gender, this area of identity in such a way to rid us of our shame, in such a way to give us freedom and not enslavement. So here are the three things we're going to go through tonight. They're all extremely controversial. They're all extremely hot button. Hopefully we can make it through it all. Designed gender, designed sexuality, and designed identity. We'll start with gender. Look at verse 18 through 20 of Genesis 2. It says this, Then the Lord said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, before we look at this text, there are two things we really need to understand when it comes to understanding the Bible. First, nothing in the Bible is on accident. It's all there on purpose. There isn't a single sentence in the Bible that God looks down and like, ah, oh, why did I have Moses write that? It's all there on purpose. As Paul says later in 2 Timothy, it's all God-breathed and profitable. So this here, this passage about Adam naming the animals is there on purpose. Second, we as people, especially with the cultural distance, have an ability, a pretty strong ability, to misinterpret texts. So often when we read stories about Adam naming the animals, we think it's some sort of elementary tidbit that, you know, you would hear at a museum. And that's why the chipmunk is named a chipmunk or something like that. It's, that's not the reason why it's here. It's not, this is where we got the name giraffe. You know, who knows how the names of animals formed, but that's certainly not all the names that we have of animals came from this moment. It's teaching something else. What is it teaching? Well, there are at least two things. The first thing that it teaches is naming the animals shows Adam's image-bearing identity as a human and his authority as a man. So like God, he starts to name things. He starts to rule over these things. God said, have dominion over these things, and he starts to do it. And he starts to give them names. So it's showing his authority and his ruling identity as an image bearer. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. The naming process teaches Adam that there is not yet a helper suitable for him. This is what it says in verse 19. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he's naming the animals and he's seeing that there's not a helper for him. Now, again, this isn't on accident. You know, it's not like God made male and female for all the species and he forgot a female for the human. And, oh, I guess we'll have to whip one of those out real quick so Adam will have a helper. The reason for it is God is a really good teacher. He's a phenomenal, masterful teacher. 
And as good teachers know, a lot of learning is experiential knowledge. You think of Adam going and he's interacting with all the other species. He's interacting with them. And he's realizing that they all have a pair. They all have a counterpart. Every extension cord has a plug-in. And he's figuring this out. And then he, realize, he realizes, I don't. I don't have another half. And as he starts to realize this, this is when God acts. This is when God moves. And this is what happens. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So imagine Adam is, falls asleep. God makes him fall asleep. He takes the rib out and he creates Adam out of the rib and then presents the first woman, Eve, to Adam. Now again, don't underestimate our ability to misunderstand. This isn't some sort of hillbilly folk tale where, and that's why men like ribs. You know, it's, it's not, that's not the moral of the story. He, again, God is teaching something in his design. It, just think of the, what we're going to hear about in a few weeks, how God works for six days in creation and then rests for seven. No one's there to observe it. And God doesn't need to rest anyways. Why tell us? Well, he's teaching us. He's teaching us a healthy, life-giving pattern. And he's, he's so dedicated to our thriving and learning a life-giving pattern that he decides to do it for himself, even though he doesn't need rest. Work six, rest seven. Work six, rest seven. And here again, he could have made Eve out of anything. He could have made Eve out of a leaf. He could have made Eve out of a toenail. He could have made Eve out of anything. But he picks Adam's rib. Why? When we look at the name Adam, in the Hebrew, it's Adam. Okay, if you want to sound really smart in Bible study, don't say Adam, say Adam, okay? But Adam comes from the word Adama, which means ground or dust. So Adam is named based off of his origin. He is oriented towards the ground. He is oriented towards the dust. Now Eve comes along, and she is taken from man. And where is she oriented towards? She is oriented towards her husband. She is oriented in that direction. And Adam sees this, and he identifies it in the first time that they meet. Think of this meeting. It's like God ushering in the first marriage. I don't think they walk down the aisle in, in the Hebrew culture, but in our culture, it'd be like God taking his bride, his daughter, down the aisle to meet the husband. This is what it says. Uh, verse uh, 22, I'll read it again. It says, and the, or verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called, or she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. As Caleb mentioned, 
last week. This is a song. It's a poem. He's singing. The first words that we get in the entire Bible, the first recorded words in history, it's a song to his new bride. And he says, she shall be, or she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, it's she should be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. It's a play on words. It's a poetic play on words. And just like in English, when you say man and woman, you know the words go together. Isha and Ish, you know the words go together. What he is saying, that these things go together. She was, making for, she was made for me. We were meant to go together. And when it says help, as, as some of the other speakers have shown out, it's the necessary help. It's he's saying that without her, I would fail in the mission that God has given me. We go together. Now, I know that when we look at the world, we can see things pretty, I think if you have eyes, you can see these, these things. That men and women are both image bearers of God, both incredible but they're also extremely different, okay? And if you doubt that, just get married, okay? That men and women are very different. In fact, there are stand-up comedians, they make their entire career just making jokes about that fact, that men and women are different. There are even political activists that spend their entire careers trying to focus on why one or the other are superior. And God says, no, they're equal in my image, but also very different. G.K. Chesterton wrote this, if I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set a flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. And you see those things that go together. He, he missed PB and Jelly, but you see those things that go together. They, they're not opposed to one another. They complement one another. It's not about which is better, the moon or the sun. You know, it's like, what a dumb statement. They, they're not better. They're different. In their special and unique ways. What is better, mountains or ocean? No, they're not better. They're different in their unique ways. And I know, okay, I'm not a caveman. I understand that to say that the woman came from man and to say that he's oriented disproportionately to his work and she's orientedly disproportionately to him and to say that Adam obviously has the authority because he's naming just the way God names, all of these things sound extremely archaic and countercultural. I understand that. And I also understand that some of you are even, are completely repulsed by the very ideas of that statement. And all I'm asking is give the word time. Give yourself time to see these things play out in real life and see the way families interact with one another and see the way husbands and wives interact with one another. And some of you, you're like a kid that is being forced to drink cough syrup. You know it's good for you, but you really don't like it, you know? So it's like, I know the Bible teaches it, and I'll just, you know, plug my nose and drink, you know? And for you, I want you to see that it's not just something to tolerate, 
to skip over and, and plug your nose as you're reading through your Bible, it is something that is absolutely beautiful. It is something to be marveled at. It is something um, that you want to fully embrace for your own thriving. I think sometimes the way we interact with some of the truths of this book is the way a child interacts with the reality of sex when they first hear it. Does anybody remember the first time you learned about sex? I remember, not the first time, but I remember the first time before the first time. I remember the first time I was introduced to the idea, and then I'm sure my parents filled in the details later. I'm sitting in the backyard. There's a girl who's in my class in elementary school. And I can remember she was a neighbor, or my mom ran a daycare for a period of time as she was one of the other kids. But she told me that one of the teachers at the school was pregnant. And I'm like, oh, great, that's, that's wonderful, she's pregnant. And she's like, isn't it embarrassing? And I'm like, uh, why, why is it embarrassing? And she's like, because it means that her and her husband had sex. And of course, as a, as a kid, I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so I was like, that is horrible. <laughs> you know? I, I had no idea, but I remember thinking, okay, this must be a very alarming thing. And then later, I learned from my parents, and I agree, it is horrible. As a kid, you're like, like, that goes in that, that is, no, that is wrong, you know, that should not happen. But as a kid, that, it's like the most repulsive thing possible, that sex is just complete gag reflex. But as you mature, and as you understand the way the world is, what is repulsive at first, what is gag reflex at first, becomes something that's actually beautiful, becomes something that is actually meant to be pursued, meant to be embraced. And uh, that is the way that sex is. That is the way that marriage is. And this is the truth that we see all over the place that God is teaching, and he teaches it particularly with sex. It's this. God has made this radiant world to be beautifully displayed through unity and diversity. God has made this radiant world to be beautifully displayed through unity and diversity. All over the place you see this. All over the place. Those things are not meant to be together, but they are. That shouldn't work, but it does. And we see this in sex. Just in my regular time with the Lord, I was reading Song of Songs, and I was reading this in a coffee shop just a few days ago. And reading the Song of Songs in a coffee shop, you feel like you're getting away with something. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. This is kind of like, I hope no one knows what I'm reading. But here's just one passage from it. Your neck is the Tower of David, built in rows of stone, on and a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. They graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. 
What the Song of Songs is, is, if you haven't read it, it's just a love poem between a man and a woman. And it's full of sensual, erotic imagery. And it's meant to be a poem. You're like kind of reading in between the lines. The more you read into, in between the lines, you're like, really? Is it saying what I think it's saying? You know, it's, you're, but it's all these sensual, these uh, like myrrh and frankincense are these smells and they're getting away and he's, in, he's enjoying her, her figure and he's, he's um, trying to just full, they're trying to fully experience one another. They're desirous for one another. Of course, some of the analogies are a little bit dated. I don't get the neck that, like the Tower of David thing, you know. Um, but you see that they're verbal with one another. They're blessing one another with words. You're flawless. And you see this picture of sex is meant to be something that is beautiful. It's meant to be something that is desired to be cherished. And this is in the Bible. This, you know, people look at this book like it's some like prude's guide to being a prude. You know, it's like, but it's, you no, know, it's in the Bible. Unity and diversity. It's not only beautiful, but it's also extremely productive. I know you don't want to think about this, but... Why are you here? Why are you here? I remember when I was a teenager, my dad came up to me and he said, son, happy birthday. And I was confused. And I'm like, dad, my birthday's not for another nine months. <laughs> and he continued to tell me a story about a snowstorm and they weren't able to go out and they ran out. And I'm like, no, stop. I blocked most of it out. It, like stuff that you don't want to think about, you know, especially as a teenage boy. But now, but now as a dad, looking back, it is a beautiful thing. It is a, cherish, a cherishing thing. Sex within marriage, you accumulate all of these different memories, all these different experiences. Some of them funny, some of them... Um, sent you and all, all sorts of different experiences and you don't share them with anyone else except one person. And not only that, but those experiences produce some of the people that you love most in your entire life. Isn't it an amazing thing that when a woman and a man come together, a deposit is made that will literally create a fat baby with the cheeks and everything, and if you just shake their, their chin, their cheek shake, that was made by, some, by sex. That was, that's what created that baby. When we create things as people, we use dark and damp things like factories. When God creates things, he uses things like sex. If we could only find a way to get even just a few notches up in creativity, we would be a lot better off as a society. But right now we're stuck with factories and God's still making things with sex. But it's not only extremely beautiful, it's not only binding a man and woman together, but it's extremely productive. It's creating little fat children. They grow up to be college students that sit and, you know, choke on the idea that their parents actually had sex one day. So God designed sex. The second thing, um, excuse me, God designed gender. The next thing is God designed sexuality. Sexuality. 
Gender and sexuality are intermixed, they're connected. Even in the English language, we use them interchangeably. What sex is your child? What gender is your child? We use them interchangeably. And we shouldn't be surprised that in the Bible, when gender is introduced, sex is also introduced. This is what it says in verse 23 through 25. It says this, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is an extremely important passage when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to marriage, because Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 19 as the crux of what marriage is. One man and one woman for a lifetime. And not only that, it's the crux of what sex is meant for. The boundaries of sex are found within this relationship. Anything that has sex outside of the boundaries of that relationship, as seen throughout the whole of Scripture, is wrong. Sex is meant between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That is the design of sex. And all of these things are seen in the phrase that God uses, one flesh. One flesh. And one flesh means sex, but it doesn't just mean that. Sex is included in it, but it means two people being bond, bonded together in a covenantal sense, in an agreement sense, and also in a spiritual sense before God. And the more and more we learn from modern science about sex, we see that these things are true. We see how this bonding actually occurs. For example, when men have sex, in their brains, a chemical is released called vasopressin. And what it's called, it's called the monogamy hormone. The more someone, a man has sex with a woman, the more he's like, this one is mine. I am attached to her. There's a, a book called Cheap Sex by Mark Regnerus. He's a professor at the University of Texas. And he wrote that between 2000 and 2014, the marriage rate between, from, for men between 24 and 34 dropped 13%. And he gives a lot of reasons why that could be the case. But one of the reasons is vasopressin. Because sex is so readily available, not only with people, but also on the internet, men are less and less likely to commit because they're, being, they're bonding with so many other things. Even within their biology, it's becoming harder and harder to say, yes, I'm going to commit to that one. Women have a similar thing in their brains. It's called dopamine. Dopamine has been referred to as um, the bonding hormone. Women release this in their brain when they breastfeed or when they hold their baby. And the more and more that they do this, the more they bond with their mate. Mark Vigneris wrote another book called Premarital Sex in America, and it's the most boring book that you could possibly read on sex. It's full of footnotes and charts and whatever. But he, he did a study showing that the more partners a teenager would have, the more likely there's a direct connection, the more likely they would be to have mental health issues. And when we see what the scriptures say, that you're actually bonding with someone, 
it makes a lot of sense. It's like a sticker that you put on a surface and you take it off and you put, put it back on and you take it off and you put it back on and take it off. Over time, it, it, it's harder and harder to make healthy bonds with people. And these things aren't just seen in relationships. They're not just seen in the way men and women can relate with one another, the way men and women can have a relationship with one another, but they're also seen in the area of pornography. Because you're not just bonding, in that, in that case, you're not just bonding with an actual person. You're bonding with the thought of a person, the image of a person. And the thing about pornography is that person doesn't talk back. They don't have opinions. They don't want to go get pizza when you want to get Mexican. There's no relational conflict there. So you're training yourself over and over and over and over again for relational expediency, for ease, for things to have quick gratification, making it harder and harder to relate with an actual person, especially in your sex life. Now I know going through all of these things can produce a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of memories, a lot of pain. And what is encouraging, what, at least what you should find encouraging, not, not that I understand that, not only from knowing a lot of people, but also in my own personal life, I understand that. But what's more encouraging is God understands it. Because in this passage, right after sex is introduced, this is what God himself says, verse 25. He said, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why does he do that? Why does he go out of his way to say they were naked and they were not ashamed? Because God knows, you know, he had Moses write this down after the fall. He, he knows what's gonna keep on happening. And the fall is right in the next chapter and brokenness is going to enter the world, and brokenness is going to enter every human sex life. And he knows that there's going to be immense shame in this area, in the area of nakedness, in the area of sex. And he says, that is not the way it was meant to be. And by the grace of God, he doesn't take us where we, from where we should be. He takes us from where we are. He doesn't sit back and, well, well, if you get to right here, then I'll work with you. No, he takes us where we are. He meets us in our brokenness. He wants to redeem each and every one of our sex lives. He wants to redeem each and every one of our worst memories, whether the memory was a year ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, or from last night. He wants to redeem it. He wants to give grace in it. Now, that gospel truth, we could talk about that all night, and I know it, it needs to sink in. But I think it's also really helpful, something that we really need to be equipped in, is not only relating these biblical truths to our own selves, but also how do we communicate some of these very controversial things, like sex is only between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That statement is a pretty controversial statement. How do we have conversations about these things with actual people? You know, 
If you haven't noticed, Christians can sometimes enjoy getting together and having conversations about conversations they haven't had and how easy and awesome we could win an argument. But I'm talking about having conversations with actual people about these hot button issues. How can you do it? If you haven't noticed on campus, most people don't believe these things to be true. If you haven't noticed, even those that believe these things to be true often don't live out these things to be true. So how do you talk about these things? I'm going to just take a little bit of an aside and go through some very practical ways to talk about this subject. Okay, the first thing. How do you have a cogent, patient, convincing conversation with someone about biblical sexuality? That's the question. <laughs> One-on-one. First thing. Have a conversation. This, these things don't apply to roasting someone on Twitter or Facebook or whatever social media that people are using. You know, it's always on YouTube, you see the things post up of Trump supporter, roasted. You know, live, roasted. You know, it's like all these things. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an actual conversation not monologue in person, not monologue on the internet, an actual back and forth conversation. So first thing is actually have a conversation where listening and communicating are involved. Listening and communicating. I also think that the, the roasting Christians, they're also the Christians that label their cowardice love and just listen. It's listening and communicating, a conversation. That's the first thing. The second thing is establish their foundational belief. Establish their foundational belief. Now, most people, including a lot of Christians, don't know what their foundational belief is. So in conversation, you can help someone realize what their foundational belief is. One way that I try to do that, and I'm not saying it works every single time, but it's, it's worked a lot and it's helpful, is I'll say to the person, I'm going to list out as many sexual acts as I can think of. And I want you to keep tabs of the ones that you think are right and the ones that you think are wrong. Now, when I'm listing them out, I'm not going to list out things that are just cringy and, you know, understand the, the conversation, like what would be appropriate to say. But I'll list things strategically that I know that this person will think are right and this person will also think is wrong. So he, here's just a list, um, just randomly, not in any particular order. So sex between a man and a woman who are married. Sex between a man and a man who are married. Sex between a man or a woman and a woman who are married. Sex between a man and a man. Sex between a woman and a woman. Sex between... Uh, an adult and a minor, sex between a, an, adult, an adult and a child, sex between a, um, a person and an animal, sex within a polygamous marriage, sex between um, two uh, teenagers, sex between two children, um, sex between someone and a prostitute, whether the one being paid or they're not the one being paid, virtual sex, pornography. You know, you could just list off things in no particular order. And then all you have to do is ask this question. Which ones did you think are wrong and why? Okay, so you're not saying any agenda of yours 
Yeah, you're, you're just saying, here, here's just off the top of my head, I'm sure we could think of a lot more, okay? But of these that I've listed, which ones did you think that's morally wrong and why? And as they start to reason through, they're going to communicate what they, their foundational belief is. Okay? They're going to communicate, maybe it's only right within marriage, but it doesn't matter if who's in the marriage. It could be polygamous, it could be two men, it could be a man and woman or whatever. Or more than likely, they'll communicate, I think it's, it's fine if it's, two, or if, if it's two consenting adults and it doesn't hurt anybody or something like that. But what you're getting at is their foundational belief. What do they really believe about these things? The next thing is you deal with the main issue. So that foundational thing is the actual main issue. That's where the real conversation is at. And what you'll find is it de-escalates the conversation at least a little bit. I'm not going to say it completely de-escalates the conversation, but it de-escalates it a little bit because you're not just coming in and talking about gay marriage. You're not just coming in and talking about trans rights. You're not just coming in or whatever it is. You're de-escalating of like, what's the core thing? Why do you believe that? And you're listening. Next, you create room for God's design. You create room for God's design. What I mean by create room is within a lot of conversations, a person is not going to be like, you're completely right, I'm completely wrong, I change to whatever the Bible says. Most conversations aren't going to go like that. By the grace of God, some of them will, but most won't. What you're doing is you're creating plausibility, where someone walks away and they think, you know what, that could be right. That person isn't like a, he doesn't have two heads and he's not crazy and he's not, you know, it's like, that is actually thought out. I could actually understand why someone could believe that and so on. You're creating plausibility. You're opening the door just a little bit to see a different world. Now, what, how do you practically do that? As I said, most people, this is their main issue. You can have sex with someone as long as it's consensual and it doesn't hurt anybody. That's what most people think. I would say a pretty high percentage of people on a college campus believe that statement to some degree. And what you can do is start to poke holes, very lovingly poke holes into an idea like that in a, in a, in a context of a conversation. One of the things that you can point out is this view of sex looks at the design of sex. This is the design of sex. Sex is meant for my personal fulfillment. Okay? So it's all about consent, and I'm consenting because I know it will bring me personal contentment or personal fulfillment. But that is not actually the purpose of sex. The, the purpose of sex is not to personally take. The purpose of sex is to personally give. You get, you're giving yourself to another person. You're not taking from the person. So when, you, when it's all based on consent, it's mutual taking. But if it's based on developing a covenant, it's about mutual giving. This is why, by the way, that everyone after you have sex, you feel a sense of obligation towards that person. 
If you just if there's someone that hooks up with someone on a college campus and they're walking to class and they see the person they, they hooked up with and they walk by and they don't even say anything, they would feel robbed. They would feel taken advantage of. They would feel like that person owes them something. This is why in our twisted culture, we have so many movies about having friends with benefits or so many TV episodes that kind of play on that idea because the, and these are typically comedies and the joke is you can't actually do it because in having sex with someone, you feel a sense of obligation. You feel a sense like this person owes me something because it's meant to be within a relationship. They do owe you something. It's self-giving, not self-taking. Another thing that this definition assumes is it doesn't affect, what goes on behind closed doors doesn't affect the community. It doesn't affect other people. You know, you'll hear this within, whatever someone does behind closed doors is none of my business and whatever, you'll hear that sort of, that lingo. But is it true? Does it actually not affect other people? Ask anyone who had a mom or a dad commit adultery on their mom or dad and ask them, you weren't in the room at the time, did it affect you? It certainly does affect other people. So, some of you have experienced friend groups in high school that were completely dismantled because two people started sleeping together. It does affect other people. Next is it not only affects community, but also it affects you personally. It not only has communal effects, but it has personal effects. I remember one time at Drake, they have a thing called the sex fair. And I was invited to be a part of the sex fair as the abstinence representative. <laughs> um, they knew I worked with the college ministry and they invited <laughs> me to be the abstinence representative. And I'm like, did anybody tell them I have like, at the time, four kids? You know, <laughs> it's like, um, but I went out and I bought some of those miniature peppermint patties, okay? And from afar, they look <laughs> like condom wrappers, okay? So what happened is people would come up to the table and they'd be reaching down and they'd like back up and they're like, what? And then they're like, oh, I like candy. So then they would take a peppermint patty. And I'm like handing out all, these, uh, all this information. And the information was like, um, 10, 10 facts about sex from the Bible or something like that that have things in the Bible and how they were backed up by modern science. So I had this study from uh, the University of Chicago about how they studied different demographics and the demographic that tested to have the most satisfying sex life were Bible-believing Christians. And I'm like, how do you like that? And Peppermint Patty. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and there another study was like University of Maryland. Um, they talked about how if you wait for sex before marriage, it drastically decreases your chances of divorce. And all these other studies that have been, been done. But what I realized, and, and I've realized over the years, is it's not just about realizing that God's design works, you know? Like if you, if you started to have a conversation with someone in, in this context and you said, okay, if we could agree that if a sexual act hurts somebody, 
in any way, themselves or others, that you would agree that it's wrong. And you went through all, all the data points of all the different sexual perversions, and here's the study, and here's the study, and here's this, and it's like, that's not actually gonna be the thing that puts it over the edge. Because in our culture, sex is not just something that someone does. Sex is something that someone is. Sexuality is not just an act that has certain results. It has become a complete identity. And so that's the last thing we're going to look at tonight, identity. And what I want to, you to really see, this will be really hard because it's so in the air that we breathe. It is so just a part of our culture that sex is not something that you are. Gender is something that you are, but sex, the act of sex, is not something that you are. It is not a legitimate identity. Now, if we look back at Genesis 2, there's a lot about identity. You know, you get Adam made from Adamah, the ground. You get Isha coming from Ish, the man coming from the woman. You, you have the identity of um, the creator. You have the identity of the helper. You have the identity that is seen in marriage. You have the identity as both of them go out and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. You know, there, are, there are a lot of identity statements. But sex is not referred to as an identity. And I want to show you just a little quick glimpse of history. Where did we get that idea? Where does that idea come from? Because it's actually very new in human history. Throughout human history, there is... There have always been dudes that like dudes and dudettes who've liked dudettes. There have always been people that dressed like the opposite sex and acted like the opposite sex. That has been fairly throughout all of human history. What is new, what is novel, is claiming that as your primary identity. That is new. So where did we get the idea? First person. Rene Descartes, and it goes back farther, but we'll just start here. Rene Descartes, the most famous, if you kind of happen to be awake in your philosophy 101 class at the time, the most famous line from Descartes is this, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And he based human epistemology or human existence on human reason. We know we exist because we think. So step one, existence is found in the human mind. The next phase was Romanticism. Romanticism, it was about 100 years, and that took another step. It emphasized feeling as the basis. Um, so it's not just I think, therefore I am, I, it's I am what I think, or I am what I feel. So a huge emphasis on feeling. At the time, there was a man growing up in Romanticism and past Romanticism, and his name was Sigmund Freud. And he takes the same type of thinking, but he focuses it on one of our greatest desires, one of our greatest feelings. Because if you look internally at the way you feel, one of the desires that you'll find within your soul is the desire for sex. And he says, not only 
you are what you think, but you are your, your greatest desire, as he said, sex. And sex moved from being not something that someone did, but something that someone is. And if you don't believe me that this is the case, there is a, um, a French philosopher and historian. You've probably heard his name, Michel Foucault. He, he himself uh, was a practicing homo homosexual and also a philosopher and historian. And he wrote a five-volume series on sex. And in that book, he says that in the 20th century, we moved away from homosexuality being a more peculiar minority act that some people in the population did, but a new species or a new class. It's how we would define people, label people, a subset of people. And then we had the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement all happening within the 60s. So 1964 was when the Civil Rights Act was signed, and 1969 is when the Stonewall riots were and the gay rights movement started. And as Flannery O'Connor, she was a, a Southern uh, writer, she said that the South was haunted by its Christianity, meaning the Southern conscience was extremely burdened by what had happened. So. Uh, to, in slavery and what had happened in Jim Crow. And people in all of America felt guilt, as they should, felt guilt of what had happened. And Martin Luther King Jr. came along and he held, predominantly at the time most people would identify as Christians, he held them to a Christian standard. This is what the Bible says. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is what the Bible says. And in the 60s, a lot of changes started to be made. At the same time that there was a new identity of sexuality starting to form, starting to grow in popularity. And what happened is they, the, the civil rights movement is like a train going down, and the gay rights movement jumps on as a stowaway. It hitches itself to that moving car. This is a, a quote moving into the trans, uh, trans rights movement uh, from Madeline Kearns that kind of encapsulates what happened. She says this, the thing is, in the 1990s, people might have been forgiven for thinking, this will never catch on. This is outrageous, talking about the transgender movement. This is absurd. They would obviously be right, but the thing was on the internet. And all those other things came into play. Society had just gotten used to defining whole sections of the population by their desires with regards to homosexuality. We moved further and further away from the sort of vision that Martin Luther King set out. We started to lose sight of all the different intricacies with regard to sexuality. Then, this is the key statement, then trans piggybacked onto the gay rights, which had piggybacked onto the civil rights. So what happened as movement is because America felt extreme guilt in one area and started to make changes, another area of the population started to make the same argument. We're a class that it's been, people have been prejudiced against. 
and we deserve these rights. All the time, what needs to be swallowed for that to be correct is it's an actual class. That's an actual identity. We don't view other things like that. And it's a very marvel or very new, novel thing to view sexuality that way. So what is the conclusion? How should we think? In our culture, what we say or what we will hear is sexuality is fixed. You're born gay, you're born bi, you're, you're born straight, and gender is fluid. It's all ever-changing, always moving. And what the Bible teaches is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Sexual, sexuality is actually very fluid, and gender is fixed. This is what I mean by it. If we took a drop of blood from every single one of you, we're not going to, but if we did, and we shipped it off to some lab, that technician could tell you for, accurately for every single one of you if you're a man or a woman. Someday when you're buried and they find your bones, 500 years from now, a trained eye could look at the bones and say, that's a man, that's a woman. You are born a man or you are born a woman. It's fixed. Sexuality, on the other hand, is not fixed. It's actually very fluid. It's highly changeable based on our surroundings, based on our own actions, based on the actions of others. In fact, a 2014 Harvard study showed that there's a, a, there's a strong correlation between abuse, all kinds of abuse, but, uh, and also sexual abuse in homosexuality. There's, there's a strong correlation. That doesn't mean that every homosexual has been abused or every person who's been abused is a homosexual, but there's a strong correlation that other people's actions towards us affect us. Or if, if you're here and if you've struggled in any way, shape, or form with pornography, you know this to be true. The further you get down the bunny trail, the more you find things attractive and sensual and pleasurable, uh, pleasurable that you never would have before. You know, if you took the things at the end of the line when someone stopped watching pornography and you showed it to them right at the beginning, they wouldn't even find it attractive. It would be repulsive. But their desires continue to shift, continue to change and go further and further and further and further and further down. Our sexuality and our sexual desires can morph, can change, are very influenced by our surroundings, our actions and other people's actions. And this isn't a bad thing, actually. Because as God redeems us, and as we find ourselves in a context where we can actually practice biblical sexuality, and you focus your desires on one person over and over and over and over again in the context of a healthy marriage and relationship, what happens? Your sexual desires change. They shift. They focus on one person. And that's a good thing. And we have to see these things. The last thing is this. If we look back at Genesis and we see the identity of Adam and the identity of Isha with Eve, we see something change later after the fall. 
you see, Adam gives Eve another name. He gives her another name. In Genesis 3.20, it says this, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. He comes in and gives her another name. Why? So after they had sinned, God came down and he starts to hand out the curses to uh, Satan and to the woman, to the man. And when he's talking to the woman, he says, your children, when you have children, your pains will be increased in childbirth. And I'm sure for Eve and Adam, there's a light bulb that went off and said, children? They're going to be children? Because what God had said is if you eat of the fruit, you will die. And when they heard that there's going to be children, what that meant is when God said death, he didn't mean right away. He meant eventually. That there's going to be some time. And in the meantime, we're going to be blessed with children. There's going to be more of us. We can still obey what God has commanded. To have dominion over this earth and be fruitful and multiply. We can still obey. God is actually going to redeem the situation. So when Adam names Eve the mother of the living, which is what Eve means. It's not an identity based on origin. It's an identity based on promise. She receives a new identity based on a promise. And as Christians, we have a lot of sin. We have a lot of brokenness that we've inherited from our forefathers and that we've committed ourselves. But we have a new identity, not based on origin, where we came from, not based on origin, what we've done in the past, but based on a promise that he who started a good work in you will finish it to the day of Christ Jesus, that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Or like in 1 Corinthians 6, he gives all these things, all these lists of wrong things, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were cleansed. So we don't embrace the world's view of identity. We don't embrace the world's view of sexuality. We don't embrace the world's view of gender. But we embrace a new identity, an identity of promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have given us. I pray that you would give us the ears to hear the eyes to see what your word says. Amen. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.